I grew up in a small South Canterbury town, not too far away from here, a little town called Waimati. Anybody, any, any, any fellow Waimati people here? Oh, okay, never mind. Waimati's actually really famous. Okay, we've got wallabies. Okay, wallabies, yeah, and we've also got this thing, this thing on the side of the hill that's a concrete white horse called the White Horse. Okay, so, yeah, so pretty cool town, pretty famous, so if you haven't had a little hiringa, a little journey down south, you know, perhaps you go check it out, Waimati. So my whanau, um, they're all still there. Um, we sort of come from, I guess, a long line, I guess you call it of workers, okay? We're kind of farm working, uh, making stuff for farms, a few coal miners in there. So we're very much a working family. So our family, we didn't really do family holidays, okay? So this wasn't one of those things you kind of fitted in when you're kind of growing up like that. But I just don't remember when I was about seven years old, my dad decided that he wanted to take our family to Auraki Mount Cook. So dad had been to Auraki Mount Cook as a young man. Um, he was into sort of walking and fishing. Um, and so he spent a bit of time in Tamanahuna in the Mackenzie district and went up to Mount Cook and he just loved it. He loved the Maunga, he loved the mountains. And so he decided he wanted to take us kids there too to have a look. So off we went to Auraki Mount Cook, these little, you know, little kids from Waimati. It's, not, you know, it's quite handy. It's just up the road, up Waitaki Valley. Um, and I've got, this, I've, this, I've got this, we had a great time from what I can remember. And I've got this awesome little photograph. Now, for those that can't, you know, back in the day, we had cameras that took things on film and then we printed them. Like, and there was these cameras that took these little square pictures, even little square photos. And there's this gorgeous photo of myself and my sister sitting um, on a viewpoint overlooking Hopapa Tasman Glacier. We're not looking at the camera, but we're looking out at the glacier. And that trip, that, that holiday to Auraki kind of was when I first learned that there was these things called glaciers. And then I also learned that there was this thing called ice ages. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of trippy. That's pretty exciting when you're like this little, little seven-year-old, like, whoa, all that ice. And so it kind of started to set me on a bit of a path, I guess. And then, you know, growing up in Waimati, Waimati High School, I, you know, kind of gravitated towards geography because my dad was really into, you know, Tataio, the, you know, the land, the environment. And so I was kind of, he sort of instilled that in us kids as well. So, yet yeah, geography, right, all about, tama, you know, Tatangata, Tafenua, people in the land. And the cool thing, doing geography, Waimati High School, field trip to Auraki Mount Cook, woohoo! Back onto the Hopapa Tasman Glacier, measuring stuff, you know, it was great fun. I don't think, don't think they kind of do that these days, but it was good, it was really good. And then, you know, growing up in Waimati, you kind of graduate from hunting wallabies, because they're kind of fun, to hunting tar and chamois. So back to Auraki Mount Cook. So yeah, so it was starting to form a bit of pattern here. And so it was sort of, the pattern was almost set. I was getting, you know, loved the mountains and fascinated by the landscape. So over time, I then found myself working for the Department of Conservation as a ranger in Auraki Mount Cook. Woohoo! So, um, and at that point, I started to think, you know, sort of hanging out with all the crew there over summer, I sort of moved a little bit away from the hunting and tramping and sort of got more into the climbing and mountaineering because that's what you did when you were working at Auraki Mount Cook. Um, and of course, that led me on a path. You know, my love of glaciers, it was kind of then I started getting out into the mountains, getting higher up the mountain and started studying snow and ice. Um, and then, yeah, eventually, um, now, um, working at the university, I take my students to the same viewpoint, to the same viewpoint as in the same place of Hopapa Tasman Glacier. And boy, is that a different view now. Okay, a six-kilometre-long lake where, when I was a little girl, was a glacier. So um, I guess I, I feel really fortunate, feel really um, 
lucky that I have a job that allows me to sort of combine my love of the mountains um, with my job and, and share that passion for the mountains with my students. Uh, and I also sort of reflect on, you know, wahini that have gone before me. You know, I think about um, Rauraka, who was the first person to ever cross Noti Rauraka or Browning Pass, just up in our back country here in, in um, Canterbury. And like Frida de Fur, the first wahine to summit Auraki Mount Cook. And I often think about those ladies and think about their journeys in the mountains and, and what it was like when they were there and how much things have changed. So I've basically been studying snow and ice and glaciers in the mountains for a couple of decades now, and I've got ongoing research projects at three uh, main glaciers, uh, Temoka Atuwe, uh, Fox Glacier, Hopapa Tasman, and the Rolleston Glacier, which if you might not have heard of, but it's actually really close. It's just up the road in Arthur's Pass National Park. And actually the data we collect on the Rolleston Glacier actually contributes to a World Glacier Monitoring Database. So it's pretty cool stuff. So yeah, we're here to have a bit of a quarter about glaciers, right? So, so who's seen a glacier? Hands up. Who's seen a glacier? Oh, okay, almost, almost. Yeah, heaps of people. Heaps of people. No, keep, so hands, keep your hands up if you've walked on a glacier. Okay, which one? France. France. Hands up still. So or keep your hands up. So the people that walked on a glacier, has anyone been inside a crevasse on a glacier? Okay. Now, those people that have been inside a crevasse voluntarily... Or involuntarily? Oh dear, okay, that's probably a conversation for another evening. Nice, nice one. Whereabouts? In the Tasman, okay. One of my, yeah, my favourite places. Excellent. So, okay, so we've got a few people around here that we, you know, probably know a wee bit about glaciers. That's good. So what I'm going to be doing here tonight is I'm going to be trying to convince you all that glaciers are the most awesome climate indicators we can have, okay, in terms of thinking about climate change. And in the words of the late Trevor Chin, who was a fabulous glaciologist um, and a good friend, is glaciers can't lie, okay? And we're going to have a wee bit of a chat about that, and hopefully by the end of the night you'll be all on board, awesome climate indicators, and they can't lie. Right, now, of course... When you cruise around Te Waiponamu, our lovely South Island, um, you're actually surrounded by a whole bunch of glaciers all the time when you're cruising around the mountains. So, how many glaciers do you think we've got in New Zealand? Now, my parent, my, I've got a few students scattered here in the audience, so if they have been to one of these lectures and know the answer, they're not allowed to answer just yet, unless it gets desperate, okay? So someone give me a number. How many glaciers in New Zealand? Give me a number. 50, 50, we're not... 2000, someone's read a recent paper. Excellent, well done. <laughs> so, so at once, when, they, when Trevor first did a count of the glaciers in New Zealand, he came up with a number around, I think it was 3,156 back in 1977. And then the more recent update we've done, we're down to 2,900. Okay, so we kind of got to, you know, and we've lost about 30% of that ice volume that we had back in the sort of mid-70s. Okay, so now if we're going to have a chat about glaciers tonight, first thing we need to do is, you know, because some people might know heaps about glaciers, others might think, oh, I'm not really quite sure why you're so excited about glaciers, not something <laughs> I've pondered. So we're just going to set a little, get a bit of a base so that we're all on the same page, right? So as a glaciologist, the thing I spend an awful lot of time doing is thinking about this thing and measuring this thing called mass balance, okay? Mass balance is essentially the health of the glacier, okay? So it tells you something about how the glacier's getting on. 
how much snow it's gaining, how much water it's melting. Now, glacier mass balance, if you like, is a bit like finance for glaciers. So, you know, if we've got a bank account, and if we're putting more money into our bank account than we're spending, the balance grows. Probably not, you know, depending on the interest rate, sometimes not that fast, but it's still growing. But if we spend more money than we put in, our bank balance shrinks. So mass balance. You, you, yeah, everyone can do it. That's, that's all there is to it, gains and losses. So our glaciers tend to gain mass by our rain, our lip precipitation falling as snow, and we lose that mass mainly by melting and runoff. But, you know, there's lots of processes that will take mass from a glacier, like iceberg carving. Okay, so we've got this thing, mass balance, gains and losses. Okay, so it's kind of our foundation, and this is the thing that we kind of measure all the time. Now... But we don't necessarily have glaciers everywhere we've got snow. Would you agree with that? Like we, we have places that are snowy, but they don't actually have glaciers. So why is that? So we need to delve into this just a little bit more. Think about what do we actually need to grow a glacier. So firstly, of course, we've got to have the rain falling as snow. So there's a couple of ways we can get that done. We've basically got to cool it down, right? So we've either got to go up an elevation, get up the side of a mountain, or we've got to go up to the lat higher latitudes, okay, where we don't get so much incoming solar radiation. So we've got to cool it down. So we need somewhere that's high enough for the liquid rain to fall as snow. Now, if we're building anything, we need to have a suitable building site, right? So if our mountainside, where our rain is falling as snow, is too steep, that snow is actually just going to slide on off, slide down to a lower elevation where it's warmer and melt away. So we need a, a building site that can actually kind of catch that snow. And like any building site, like say you were going to build a house out here somewhere in Christchurch, you know, and you're thinking about where you might buy a block of land, you know, you might actually be kind of interested in having that block of land like with a nice favourable aspect to the sun, you know, so you can get nice all-day sun, grow your veggies. But, you know, glaciers kind of would rather have a bit of a shady aspect, okay? So kind of if you're going to have the ultimate glacier site, you want to be kind of more on the south side of your mountain range or something where you're not getting as much sun. So you've got to be high. You've got to have a nice little basin to catch the snow. It's better if it's not too sunny. And then the other thing we need to get our glacier growing is we need for that site to gain more snow each year than melts away the following summer. Okay, so we've got to be somewhere where we've got more gains, more mass going in, than we've got water melting out. Okay, and if we've got that, year after year, the snow layers build up and up and up. Gradually, that snow will sort of compress down into ice, and then we'll start to get the system going, and the ice will start flowing down the mountain under its own weight and under the influence of gravity, flowing down from those nice high cold areas down to where it's warmer and where it melts out. Okay, so it's a system. Okay, it's a system. Snow going in, ice flowing down, water melting out, just constantly renewing itself. So, yeah, if we have the right climate, they can, they'll last forever, right? If we have the right climate where we've got this enough snow going in to sustain the body of the glacier, they'll, they'll be perpetual. Fantastic. So we've worked out mass balance, okay? It still hasn't really necessarily told us why. You know, we've kind of got some climate links there, right? So we kind of go, oh, yeah, you can start to see why glaciers are kind of linked to climate but we need to delve into this a little bit more. So we're going to think about this thing called glacier response. Because what you sort of realise, just like people, glaciers are not all the same shape and size, and so they don't all behave in the same way. And so we've got to think about this idea of response. Now, 
So let's let's think about how we might visualise this. So say you might have, so visualise perhaps, um, have a choice here, maybe like a, like a big truck and trailer unit, maybe it might be a milk tanker. Um, and if you're not, in, like, or maybe um, Star Destroyer, any, Imperial Star Destroyer, any Star Wars fans here? Yeah, okay. So yeah, milk, if you can't do Star Destroyer, you could do a milk tanker, okay? And then you've also got, like, say, a mini and, or like, you know, an X-Wing Starfighter or something, okay? So Star Destroyer, little Starfighter. We're going to assume for this that the pilots or the drivers of either of these vehicles are equally skilled, and then suddenly there is an obstacle in front of them. It could be a big rock on the road, or it could be a meteor, or it could be a rogue Starlink satellite. It's got away. Um, whichever it is, okay, they're cruising along, both these vehicles cruising along, got nice competent drivers, they see this obstacle, then they need to try and avoid it. They're going to do something to manoeuvre around it, okay? Which one's going to be able to deal with that? Now, I don't need to tell you the answer, right, because it is completely intuitive. The the little snappy thing is going to be able to readjust to respond to that obstacle much faster than the big, bulking Star Destroyer, okay? The so smaller mass will be much more agile than the big, bulky thing. So this is a little bit, you know, so we've, got, we've now got glacier response down, right? So small little glaciers, there's particularly ones on steep mountainsides, can adjust to climate much more quickly than big, Large glaciers, particularly ones with lower angled slopes. You can kind of think of it too, like if you've got a really big mass. Um, so you think we've got, a, think you've got a, you know, a bathtub, right? You've got a bathtub, it's full of water. You tip another cup of water in it. Yeah, can you tell that you've tipped that cup of water in it? No, you just don't see it, okay? But if you had like a, just a little kind of saucer of water and you tipped a cup in, you would see that water level change, okay? So it's a little bit like that too. When you've got these big masses, these really large glaciers, it's hard to see the mass changes compared to little, short, steep, fast-flowing ones where we see the change. So we've got some pretty fast-responding glaciers here down in the old South Island. Um, Fox and Franz Joseph respond very quickly to climate change. They've got these quite big accumulation areas up high, big, big areas that catch snow, but they feed it into this little narrow valley that reaches steeply way down into the mountains. So they are able to take a change in climate and filter that through and respond to that quickly. Who can remember 2008? Oh. Anybody over on Te Waiponamu, the west coast, in 2008? Okay, what was going on over there in 2008? Pretty wet? Yep, pretty wet. What else was going on? You can see it's not... This is what happens to me, my students, all the time. It's like, oh, that's not the answer I was hoping they were going to give me, but I'll just, keep, I'll just keep probing. What was happening on west coast, 2008? Glaciers were doing something, Rachel. <laughs> oh. Well done. Well done, Gawla. Yeah, I've got my hecklers at the front. Woohoo! So back in 2008, we were actually in an interesting situation here at Aotearoa, New Zealand. We actually had a number of glaciers advancing. We weren't, you know, overseas um, in Norway, similar sort of things going on. So we actually had our little, uh, our sort of more fast-responding glaciers growing, okay? Um, Fox, Franz, to YY, um, which is up in Oraki, Mount Cook National Park, the smaller glaciers were advancing. They were responding to climate variability, so changes in climate at shorter time scales. So all glaciers respond to climate, but depending on their response to how sort of fast that can happen and how easy it is for us to see that happening. 
So in 2008, we had a whole lot of advancing glaciers, and they were responding to some changes in our climate, so changes in how much rain was falling as snow, um, how much water, how much ice was sort of melting and the water coming out of the glaciers, and they were actually growing. But yet, pretty much that last advance ceased in about 2009, and ever since then, we've just had this story of recession. <laughs> Not so good for a glaciologist, I say. Never mind. But yeah, 2008 was pretty exciting. Like, you know, studying glaciers, you're like, yeah, those things are coming down the mountain. But yeah, never mind. I, you know, live to see another day. So we've kind of, okay, we've got glacier response. We've got mass balance. We've worked out mass balance, so gains, losses, okay, need more snow, got to be in the right place, melting water, water's melting out, it's always this dynamic system, okay, and then that, if we change the climate, if we make a, check, a step change, like warm things up, cool things down, and it's after a few years, the glacier will readjust its size, reorganise itself and get itself in sort of, to be basically balanced with climate again. But, you know... This is called raising the bar, right? So, you know, some of you might have already known all that stuff. So, we know, we need to raise the bar, right? Don't we need to raise the bar? Yep. Raise the bar. Yeah, raise the bar. Okay. So, we're going to take it a little bit further tonight. We're going we're gonna to just push you along a little bit further. You've now, you've now worked out. You know, glaciers are pretty cool, pretty cool climate, climate indicators. They respond to climate. But it gets a little bit more complicated than that. Okay. So... Let's go back to our temperature thing, okay? So we had our temperature thing. So we've all worked out that if we go up in elevation, the temperature cools down. Now, there's actually, you know, I've got friends that, you know, and like myself, we actually, you know, for kicks, like put temperature sensors up and down mountains and walk around them in the weekend. That's kind of like the sort of thing that scientists do for fun. Yeah, yeah, just like going to the mall. Um, so we measure this stuff. So what we know is that on average, in a sort of alpine environment like New Zealand, our temperature changes as we go up the mountains or down the mountains by about 5 degrees Celsius or 5.5 degrees Celsius per kilometre. Okay, so that is uh, 0 0.0055 degrees per metre. Right, now, who's good at numbers? Um, it could be an excuse to get out your phone. If elevation changed by 200 metres what would be the effect on temperature? So, so, you know, so we want to go 200 multiplied by 0.0055. Someone number crunch it. Go for it. 1.1, yep, okay, nice. That was fast. Okay, so yeah, about one degree, about one degree Celsius. And you might think, oh yeah, one degree Celsius, that's not that big a deal. But just to put in some context, Little Ice Age, 1700s to sort of 1800s, when glaciers were way bigger than they are now, Half a degree, about half a degree, 0.6 of a degree warmer in summer. So one degree Celsius is really important. It's a big deal for glaciers. Because actually, the glaciers we've got, the ice we've got in our mountains here is what we call temperate ice. Now, glaciologists have this kind of funny thing talking about warm and cool. So I, sometimes I use the word warm when I'm actually still talking about things that are below zero. Okay, that's just kind of what we kind of do. So temperate ice, like we have in our, our mountains around here, is actually very, very close to zero degrees Celsius. Now, has anyone got any like, ice in their glass? People got ice. So it's a very delicate balance. That ice will only be about, like, very close to zero. Might be like negative 0 0.03 degrees or 0 0.05 degrees, like really, really close to zero. So if we change temperature by even a tiny amount, 
tiny amount, that can bring, if we increase it, that can bring that ice into melting. Okay, so we're in, you know, we've got 2,900 glaciers, but they are in a really delicate balance, okay? So, what was that one degree? So, Hope Upper Tasman Glacier, the glacier that my sister and I looked out on, that I take my students to look out on, has actually lowered, its surface has lowered over the years by 200 metres. So, that surface of the glacier is now actually in a warmer zone. So we've got these things in the Earth climate system called feedbacks. Okay, so what's going on here? Okay, so we warm up climate. The glacier starts melting, starts thinning. So when glaciers are receding, they're not just getting shorter, they're also getting skinnier. Okay, they're getting thinner. So the surface of the glacier comes down. It's now down a couple of hundred metres. So now that ice is in a warmer zone. Warmer temperature, more melting, more thinning. Warmer temperature, more melting, more thinning. Okay, so it's what we call a positive feedback. Okay, positive feedback. A positive feedback is an amplification. Okay, it's taking something that's changing and it's pushing it along in the same direction. Okay, so positive feedback, not actually very positive for glaciers. Okay, so not too good. Okay, so that's feedback number one. We do all right with that? Eh? Yep. yep, we have another one. Another bit of feedback. Right. So we're still, let's still keep with this kind of thinning, thinning ice thing. So we've also so we've worked out that as the glaciers are receding, they're not just shrinking, getting shorter. You know, it's not all just about standing at the bottom, looking at what's happening, but they're actually thinning. And so what happens up on the top of the mountains, as the ice is thinning, we start to expose more rock. Okay, so, you know, any mountaineers here in the audience, people that have a little bit of climbing? Sounds to me like you might, if you've gone, managed to go into a crevasse, you've probably done a bit of climbing. Does anyone want to, anyone done a, you know, a few climbers out there? Anyone want to, like, describe what, you know, if you had to describe the quality of the rock in the Southern Alps in New Zealand, what sort of words might come to mind? <laughs> yep, great, chossy, you know, crumbly. Some, I have heard some climbers refer to it as wheat bicks. You know, and sometimes you're out there and you know, you're kind of scrambling up a ridge and you're like, Ooh. so it's not the best. You know, yeah, okay, if you went down to Fjordland shore, you know, they've got their kind of granite and eh, nice stuff down there. But, you know, along the sort of main divide, Southern Alps here, our tall East Grey Wackies, not, you know, it's kind of, you know, not the best. And so what happens? This rock, you know, you, well, let's give the rock a feel. Go, right, you know, because it has been under an awful lot of pressure and been squished down by ice, and that ice is going to be melting and refreezing and giving the poor old rock a bit of a hard time for quite a few years. So this rock is a little bit, when it gets exposed, when the ice shrinks away, it's a little bit crumbly, it's a little bit chossy, I like that word. And so what actually happens is we tend to get a little bit more rock fall, and it actually means there's a whole lot of sort of more rock dust available. So by the end of each summer we start to find that the glacier surface starts to get dirtier and dustier and darker, yeah. And so now, snow and ice, as you probably have heard before, is it's kind of got this cool thing called albedo or reflectance, like what all surfaces have. And when it's nice and white, it can actually reflect 80, 90% of incoming shortwave radiation, incoming the heat from the sun. Snow, nice clean snow can reflect all that back into outer space. Helps keep the surface cool. Ice, you know, ice can still reflect about sort of 60% of the incoming radiation, the heat from the sun. But of course, if we actually cover that snow and ice with this dust, this dirt, it makes it darker. The dust is darker, it then absorbs 
that incoming radiation, that heat from the sun, heats up and melts the ice. Okay, so what have we got going on here? We've got thinning ice. We've got the ice getting dirtier. We've got that lowering the albedo so it absorbs more heat. And what do you think happens? We melt more ice. Okay, so what sort of feedback's this one? Positive. Positive feedback, right. So heating, melting, dirty, melt, heating, same on. Okay, so not a good thing. Again, positive feedback, not good for glaciers. The, the rock stuff, the rock debris is kind of interesting in glaciers because it can get a little bit more complicated. Because if we have a really big rock fall onto the glacier surface, actually not even that big, we only need two to three centimetres of rock covering a snow, ice or glacier surface and it actually slows the melting down. It actually works like a blanket, a protective cover. So once the rock's thick enough, sure, the rock itself absorbs the heat from the sun, but it doesn't actually manage to conduct that all the way through into the ice. So when we see, the, like the Hopapa, the, the Tasman Glacier, the Hooker Glacier, the Murchison, they're actually kind of developing these big blankets of rock on the surface that's actually a protection. It's kind of like a trying to slow down the mountain. So if you like, it's kind of almost a bit of a negative feedback, okay? So, you know, so rock debris can have a, you know, go a few ways. Can we do one more feedback? What do you reckon? One more feedback? Okay, one more feedback. And this one's actually um, linked to my sort of current research programs that I've got at the moment. So um, a few years ago, a good friend and colleague of mine, we did a project exploring. We, we kind of, you know, we spent a lot of time in the mountains ourselves and we, we kind of kept hearing climbers and mountaineers sort of talk about how the climbing route to Auraki Mount Cook was getting more cut off, you know, the glaciers, the crevasses were getting worse, all this sort of stuff. And we decided we want to explore that. So um, we did this cool project where we, we kind of measured stuff, because that's what you like doing when you're a scientist, right? Go out and measure stuff. Um, any excuse to be out there, wandering around, measuring stuff. Um, and then we had a good, you know, good old few kōrero, good chats to a lot of the mountaineers and a lot of the guides, talking about what was happening, what they were observing, and that we were getting some really um, interesting sort of, you know, there's all this kind of narrative about, Ah, oh, you know, it seems that seems that the glaciers are, are kind of that the snow, the crevasses are becoming exposed earlier, and you know all this sort of thing. The mount, the climbing routes are getting cut off, and that kind of got me thinking. I was like, oh yeah, that's a really good thing to think about. So I thought, ah, oh, so what if the crevasses are being exposed earlier? What's you know, is there a feedback in that? You know, we kind of like these feedbacks in the climate system. So for the last four years, I've been taking a team um, up into the head of the Tasman Glacier. Um, maybe even into, you know, into some favourite crevasses. And we've been putting a whole lot of temperature sensors and stuff down inside crevasses. We've been getting thermal cameras and looking at the temperature of the crevassed regions of the glaciers. And, yeah, we're finding that our hunch was right. They are indeed locations in our mountainous environment, our maritime climate, that ends up getting pretty warm. Okay, the air inside of the crevasses actually helps trap some of the radiation coming in from the sun. And they've got the big surface area, okay? So you've got all, this, all these walls, all these sort of surface. So a crevasse, oh, see what I like? I just sort of made an assumption. So a crevasse is kind of like a crack in the ice, okay? So it's kind of where the stress of the ice flowing overcomes the strength of it and it pulls it apart. Now, it's not a crevice, okay? All you rock climbery types that call things crevices, crevices in a rock, crevasse, isn't it? You know, <laughs> sounds kind of, you know. So these crevasses tend to actually get quite warm. And so it's quite so again, it's another feedback we're exploring where in the summer months, so you know, if it's true um, that we get like so say we get less winter snow, 
as the climate warms. Or maybe we actually get just as much winter snow, but because our summer temperatures are warming, that snow melts off more quickly. What happens is these crevasses then get... So in winter, they get filled up with snow. They get covered all over. You can't see they're there. Bit of a menace when you're wandering around. So you've got to rope up together and try not to fall in them. It gets, does get quite exciting. You know, yeah, you, see, you should see my, my field activity, my health and safety plan that I have to get through at work. It's like um, when I sort of like the technicians that have to sign them off kind of just look at me and say, what? You know, it's like, no, no, you know, what roping up for unless you travel, you know, having a leg go in, that's kind of normal. You know, it's only it's only if you like you go right in that 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 would yeah I would that would I'd do paperwork then that would perhaps be an event, but you know but you know legs and that that's that's this kind of part of glacier travel it's okay, um, so they get covered over in winter and you can't see where they are but as the summer melt season progresses the snow thins they get exposed and then there they go they can start trapping that incoming solar radiation and heating up so what sort of feedback do you think we've got going on there? Yay, positive, okay. So, um, so the end of all that, right? So, so glaciers are awesome climate indicators. They expand and shrink. They're in this delicate balance. Their ice mass, like the ones in our mountains here, very close to zero. We don't have to change much to actually have them respond, have them change. So we've got a system. The system's always working to balance but what is happening is on top of that sort of standard mass balance and the glacier trying to respond to climate change is that we're having all these feedbacks starting to kick in, okay? When things are starting to get so thin, they're starting to get dirty and all that stuff is accelerating the melt rates. So, um, so basically, warm it up. Ice melts. It's um, pretty simple, really. So um, that's the note I want to leave you on. And... Um, Leave you with the fakatoki. I like the, this fakatoki that um, I quite like. It's fakatoki naru to tangata toi tu te which is saying like you know when the people um, have gone toi tu te whenua, the land will still remain. Sometimes I wonder about this, and I think maybe this should be like fakatoki naru to tangata mate te whenua. You know, after the people have gone, is the land going to be? How well is the land going to be? Um, I think our challenge as um, citizens of this earth of this is to you know make sure it is toy to whenua that um we look after our planet and we do our bit to lessen our impact on it so that we can keep that snow and ice in the mountains what do you reckon cool okay tenakoto 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 katoa <laughs> questions if there is any what would be the prediction of the height of uh, any height change in the Alps uh, when the main fault finally goes, maybe in the next 50 years? Four, yeah. Um, Glacier's going to start growing again. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would, it would be a super complex situation because you could think of lots of things going on. So you can imagine if the Alpine fault goes, there'll be a tonne of rock fall. Right, so there will be a ton of rockfall. So there might be some um, glacier areas that do get covered in rock, and it will slow down melt rates and um, add to the thing. The changes, though, in and the, the changes in elevation, because I think along the main divide of Southern Melts, we've got like a collision, so we're getting uplift there. Um, you know, in, in different parts of the fault, we've got some side slip. Um, I have no idea really what the end result would be for glaciers. Um, I imagine it would they'd still be there. It would be, you might see a bit more rock and debris, um, which may help some of them out, for sure. Um, it will put a whole lot of dust into the atmosphere, so it would depend. You could end up with just a whole lot of dirty surfaces, and if the earthquake happened in the middle of summer, we could get really enhanced melting. 
El Nino versus La Nina, you know, one gets us more precipitation, but it's generally warmer. El Nino, I think, gets us less precipitation, but colder winters, warmer summers. What feeds the glacier more? Yep, good question, Josh. And um, so there's been quite a bit of research into that role of the La Nina versus El Nino in um, glaciers in New Zealand and in um, South America and Norway. Like we, um, they have a similar kind of phenomenon up there, so ocean atmosphere kind of thing. And so, yeah, so when we're in a El Nino, which we haven't had for a while, but there's rumour, there's rumour on the websites that we could be heading in for one again. <laughs> yeah, the sort of thing that you know, meteorologists think, so, ooh, we might be having another El Nino this soon. Look at what's happening with that ocean temperature. But so what happens with an El Nino, um, if we're thinking, like I always like to think about what happens along the main divide, the main divide of the Southern Alps is we tend to get more westerly weather. So we get enhanced westerlies with an El Nino. So that means into the mountains, we tend to get more precipitation, um, more snow falling, rain falling as snow, and we tend to get cloudier summers. They're not so, you know, they're actually often not particularly wonderful summers. But if you are actually in, like, say, Marlborough, North Canterbury, you can actually end up in drought situations. Um, also, you know, and up into Gisborne. So the effect these things have on, uh, it depends where you are, okay? Um, so El Nino can actually be quite good for glacier growth, and there's... a um, reasonable number of studies that sort of point to those advances that we've been seeing back in the in the sort of 90s, the 80s, the 90s. We almost had decadal regularity with the advancing and retreating of like the Fox Friends and some of those fast reacting glaciers for many years, um, except since 2008, we, we kind of missed the next decade of advance because we haven't had a lot of El Nino systems or, or um, atmospheric circulation since then. In a La Nina, we get big anticyclones tend to sit over the Southern Alps. So though when we're here in Canterbury, you can kind of be thinking it's often not great because we get more enhanced easterlies. Things like El Nino and things like um, ocean atmospheric circulation, so the way our ocean currents sort of shift around and that, those are the kind of natural variability in climate that faster responding glaciers can actually you know, change, you know, the glaciers will change their mass too on those sort of decadal scales. But it's the ones like things like the Hopapa Tasman, it just doesn't even see that, right? Because it's, it's responding. It takes such a big mass, takes so long to respond that it's just working out that, hey, we're over a degree warmer already than we were in the 1800s and we're still warming up. So it's just dealing with that. Whereas, you know, Fox and Friends can kind of do these faster adjustments. But even though they've been our, our sort of poster children for glaciers in New Zealand, they're, you know, awesome locations for, like, tourism and great for those little communities over there. They are both now way further up the valley than we have ever seen them. Their last previous minimum was in the mid-'80s, um, and they are, like, way past that now, way past that. So we're going into all new territory in terms of the, the how small our ice masses are getting in New Zealand now. We need another yeah, when we don't just need one good El Nino year, we need like a whole good old five, six years of it, you know, which you know, poor farmers on the East Coast would not thank us for. But the, so that's the thing with the you know so they're just like, you know, one sunny day, it, it kind of might feel on that day that yeah, summer's awesome, but then that doesn't necessarily mean summer's gonna be awesome. So like your one good El Nino season. So even though some of the meteorologists are getting quite excited that this could be a nice big El Nino looming. We'll need more than one to turn things around. We'll need quite a few years of that to change that balance of ins and outs to actually get that glacier growth again. 
1999, I've got photos playing in the um, YR riverbed at the terminal face. Um, fast forward to 2008, 2009, glaciers at the foot of the valley. This year, as you say, it's halfway up. You know, it's on its way. Mm. And it's, it's devastating. So in, I guess, the lifetime of a fast-acting um, glaciers such as Franz and Fox, etc. How far can they go before they reach the point of no return? Yeah, that is a really good question. And um, I'll probably lean more like a good colleague of mine, Dr. Brian Anderson, does a lot of computer modelling. So, you know, he does a lot of field work too, like me. We kind of love running around the hills. And Brian has done a lot of work particularly on the Franz Joseph Glacier. glacier. Um, we've, he's optimised his model for that. And, and so... And it's really, it's, it gets really interesting results because, you know, we, have, we are starting to go into some of these tipping points, right? So some of these feedbacks, so that you have this thing, this problem that when you actually get so small, you start to have all these things starting to work against you that makes it harder for the glacier to recover. Um, now, with, he has done a lot of modelling looking out to 2100 and thinking about um, what's going to happen to the snow and ice in the mountains here. And in a lot of cases, he, he can main, like, basically we'll lose all the trunk, likely to lose all the trunk in the Franz and will end up at fragmenting, like a lot of the mountain glaciers, fragmenting into little little glaciers perched up in the mountains. Um, you know, if we think about, you know, the IPCC and the kind of worst-case scenario, you know, we, we would stand to lose a lot of ice in the southern Alps and Brine, like you could be up to like 80% or something. But the interesting thing with his modelling, though, does show that if we actually, you know, if we pull finger... If we pull finger and actually meet some of those targets, his model can keep snow and ice in the New Zealand Southern Alps. Sure, it's going to be smaller, but you know when we look at all the numbers and you know if we can actually if we actually kind of manage to stop the heating, stop the CO2 going into the atmosphere and sort of slow some of that stuff down. I mean we're already committed to a certain amount of warming because we've already got a certain amount of greenhouse gases out there but if we can actually slow that down we can keep the glaciers in the mountains they will be smaller we won't see you know that that big long trunk they won't be so visible from the road but because they they react quickly they're tricky ones because we could end up with a decade where we get a whole bunch of El Ninos even if we're on the background of continued warming and we might see those fast reacting glaciers have a little advance but the thing is they'll never regain they'll probably never regain the the, the sort of mass they've lost already, and then when they recede again, they'll be receding in even warmer climates, so we'll see them go back. But I'm trying to be hopeful that we'll still have little patches up there because I am a glaciologist. I have this, um, I have this colleague at, at Canterbury that does sediments, and he always kept telling me I needed to start looking at the rocks because he's like, seriously, Heather, you should be starting to look at the rocks a little bit more because you're an endangered species. I'm like, no, I want to look at the ice. But, yeah, I don't know if I've answered your question, but... It's, it's a, you know, the biggest uncertainty, actually, the interesting thing is the biggest uncertainty we have with all the models that um, you, you read about in the IPCC and all the glacier modelling everyone does, and, and when you sort of talk to Brian on that, the biggest uncertainty we have in all this is the emi emission scenarios, because we don't know what you're all going to do. We don't know what everyone else is going to do. We don't, you know... That they're actually the bigger uncertainty. So the physical processes, thinking about how the glaciers work, how the oceans, and you know, they're, they're complex models, and there is a lot of uncertainty in them. But the biggest uncertainty as we move forward to 2100 is, well, you know, how much CO2 ends up in the atmosphere? What, you know, how much warming do we have? So it's a little bit like crystal ball gazing, really. But yeah, if we can cool it down, we can keep some ice. How frustrated do you get 
how, how do you cope with that? I love the fact you use the word frustrated. Often when people ask me that question, that's kind of more like, oh, do you feel a bit sad about it? It's like, no, I actually feel really frustrated. Um, you know, and, and, and some of the students that have been in my classes will know, like, as I say to them, well, yeah, yep, this is, you know, maybe it's a fault of the scientists, you know, we keep tweaking, we keep adjusting the numbers just a little bit, you know, here, there, a wee bit more information, check that. But at the end of the day, the story has not changed. You know, we can go back to the 1890s and there's scientists there that worked out. They, in fact, that there was a dude that did some estimations on what would happen if we doubled CO2. Oh, we'd warm more climate up by five to six degrees. This is in 1896. Cervantes, um, Arachnus, he was pretty much on the money, 1896. James Hansen was chaining himself to trees and car parks, saying to everyone, we've got to stop the CO2 in the 1980s, you know? Like, this is the thing. And this is the thing that I find so frustrating. It's like, we haven't changed the story. The story, yep, sure, we're getting extra details and, you know, get a bit more information here and there, but the story hasn't changed. Um, the message hasn't changed our understanding of the main causes hasn't changed and still nothing happens. And so, yeah, frustrating. Frustrating is the thing. And, and I guess, and, you know, you can get really you can get angry about it, but you know, really all I think the only thing you can kind of do is, you know, do your bit, you know, live the life you want to live, you know, live the, you know, aim to be as, live your life as, light on, as lightly on the planet as you can, think about what you can do, think about what you really need to do, what you don't have to do, and just hope others make the same decision, eh?